Uh, you binged on peanut butter, huh? Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 117 of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Eric Davis and Reuben, Reuben Lerner. Hi. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we're going to be talking about how to find your first clients. So I'm kind of curious, who were you guys' first clients? So I know I've told the story fairly recently, but basically my first client was my previous employer. I'd worked there for about eight months or so, and when I told them I was moving to Israel and planning to do consulting, they said, well, we'd be happy to be your first clients. So that was basically as easy and as great as it can get. Of course, you know, other clients were harder to get, but that was a great, great, great starting point and also taught me a heck of a lot without having to learn too many difficult lessons straight away. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you tell us who it was or does, I guess it doesn't really matter. Is there, oh, is there some trick oh, to I mean, I mean, making oh, that work? I wish I knew. I mean, basically, it was, I mean, I was working for Time Warner at the time, eh, so to speak. And basically, it was so early in the web, it was like 1995, that finding web people was pretty hard. So there were at the beginning three of us doing the web development there. And it was like this all new crazy thing. Wow, we're going to put Time Warner on the web. By the time I left there, I think we had like 40, 50 people working, but they were still hiring like mad. So I think perhaps the big secret was being in the, you know, the right place at the right time, having niche knowledge and experience that they really could use and they couldn't find too easily elsewhere. Um, and the fact that they knew me and could trust me. And so we had a working relationship already. Yeah, that makes sense. What about you, Eric? Um, my first client was actually my previous employer also. When I was working for them as an employee, I was like, the main web developer, the web administrator, I did the marketing campaigns, like email marketing stuff. I did half of the system administration. I did some of the desktop development. I did a little bit of the mobile development. Like I was basically, I was in every department, but sales and accounting, I believe. And so, you know, when I left, like I, I gave them like a bunch of notice because we we're moving out of state. And it's just the kind of thing like, you know, you can never document, you know, what you've done in the past couple of years in a couple of weeks. And so, I end up moving up here and there's like a couple of things like, oh, hey, we need help or, you know, it'd be a lot faster for you to do development on this than for us to like bring someone else up to speed and find time for them to do it. And so I think my first where my first three or four contracts was with them. I mean, the rates were like really bad. I think it was like thirty five dollars an hour, which, you know, coming from an employee, I was like, oh, this is awesome. But for my skill set, that was like bottom, bottom of the market at the time. And then trying to remember my second I think my second client came from like a referral that I knew just in my personal life. And it was a basic web design job. Like I didn't really use any of my development skills. I didn't use Rails, even though I knew it like the back of my hand, but it was enough to kind of get me bootstrapped into freelancing. And then from then on, I just started like actually starting to do marketing, started to find people, started to find clients. And, you know, my previous employer in the personal context basically got me going. Very cool. So my first client was not my employer. In fact, uh, I went into work and they called me and another developer in. And the only reason that they waited until 10 a.m. was because they were waiting for yet another developer to show up. And he had decided to come in at noon. So they called us in and laid us off. And so, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, that was. Well, did, they basically, did they basically say to you, hey, we've got a big meeting as soon as so and so comes in? No, but my boss kept 
checking and he'd step out and I figured out later that he was actually calling this other developer. Uh, you know, when are you going to be here? And finally, HR just said, look, you've got to, you know, you've got to pull the trigger on this. So uh, me and the other developer got called into HR and, you know, my boss looked really upset and HR looked less upset, but still upset. And because we were <laughs> tight knit as a company, but, you know, it wasn't as personal for her as it was for him. And yeah, so got laid off. And so I was out there. I was pretty jaded as far as jobs went. I wasn't going to take a job unless I was pretty sure it was something that I really wanted to do. And so I was actually looking for a job and looking for clients at the same time. And so I went to lunch with a bunch of folks, just, you know, local people, you know, myself and the other developer that later showed up at noon. And incidentally, I texted him and I, you know, because I was at home. I'm like, have you gone to work yet? And he texted me back and said, hang on, I'm getting fired. <laughs> but <laughs> that, that, Glad that he had the time to text you back while that, getting fired. Yeah, that was his, that's his, totally his personality. Anyway, so I went to lunch with him and a bunch of other folks. I wound up uh, hearing that there was a company, local company that was looking for people. So I went and applied and they were looking for a contractor. So when they asked me what my rate was, I told them 60 bucks an hour. And it turns out if you undercut the competition by more than half, they'll hire you. And so that's how I got my first client. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was like, like I said, it was like 60 bucks an hour, not quite as low as Eric's 30 bucks an hour. But yeah, I mean, that was my first client. I just talked to people and found out, you know, who was looking and then went and got the job. Eric had a point, maybe this happened to you as well, Chuck, but I found that when I started this first project, it might have been the first project I did. I mean, with me, it was Time Warner, my former employer, but it was definitely not the last. And I would say the first project I did wasn't even the biggest or the most lucrative, that after everyone saw that it could work out, that I was trustworthy, not only as an employee, but as a contractor and working remotely, it then worked up, I think within six months, I was working on a whole new project that I'd never had anything to do with, with other people, a whole big new thing. And I think I worked on that for close to four years. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty awesome. And for me, my I don't know, third or fourth client, I picked up kind of in those early days, ended up working with them for, I think, four or five years. I mean, significant amount of income, you know, probably about half of the actual revenue for my company in some years. That's interesting because, yeah, that first client was like three months. And honestly, it's not a contract I ever would take today. And I'm not just talking about the rate, the conditions I had to go into their office every day and work. And, uh, you know, some things like that. And that's just not something I'm willing to do anymore. But yeah, I mean, you know, you wind up taking the client that you can get. And, you know, after that, I wound up doing some maintenance work for a company in San Francisco. And interestingly enough, I actually found that one through a recruiter. And the way that I w got hooked up with it was that I have had friends in the Ruby community all over the place for quite a long time before I started doing Ruby Rogues, which started uh, a little over three years ago, I actually did a video series called Teach Me to Code, and I did an interview series where I interviewed Rubyists. And so I had a platform, and I had a lot of contacts, and so I just let people know that I was looking for contracts. And so this friend of mine put me in touch with the recruiter who was looking for a contractor for that contract. So that was my second contract, and I asked for quite a bit more than 60 bucks an hour in that case. One of the many mistakes I made in the early days, so I don't think it was the first contract with Time Warner, but I think it was like the second or third, I somehow agreed to do it on a fixed price basis. 
And, of course, things just ballooned and ballooned ballooned beyond what we had originally expected or anticipated. I was so new at this, I didn't understand that I had to go to them and say, listen, the scope has changed so much. And so I was just working harder and harder in the hopes of getting the money that we had originally talked about. And so finally, I just really had it. And I got really upset. I said, listen, I'm working so hard here. I need to get some money here. What's going on? And I I wish I'd been that polite. But my lack of politeness and my, to some degree, hysteria both taught me that I need to think about this a lot more in advance and change the way I do things and made them realize, wait, we need to rethink this. And actually, then we negotiated a contract that worked out great. And that was then, I think, for you know probably the bulk of those four years, probably like three years or so. And that was a retainer. And that, that's what taught me actually the value of having a retainer deal where I was working for roughly 20 hours. I mean, it was supposed to be for 20 hours a month. I'm sorry, 20 hours a week. I think it was for like $75 an hour. And that allowed me then to start looking for other clients as well. Because it meant, okay, I know how much work I'm going to do. I know how much money I'm going to get. Now I can start looking for other clients in case, or, or I guess when these guys disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'd kind of like to talk about a little bit is if somebody is considering going freelance or, you know, they're thinking or, you know, they're in a position like where I'm at, where, or where I was at, you know, four years ago, where, you know, they get laid off and they, you know, they can go find another job or they can go freelance and find clients. What do you recommend to people that they do? How do other people find that first client? My first suggestion would be don't wait for that moment if you can avoid it. If you're thinking, well, you know, maybe in another year I'll want to go freelance. Maybe in six months I'll want to go freelance. Then I think it's worth already putting out the feelers and talking to people and letting them know what your expertise are. You don't have to say, I am looking to freelance. You know, you don't have to commit career suicide or at least job suicide. But I think starting to lay the groundwork so that when you leave your job and you say to people, hey, I'd like to find a contract, you will have a network of people who know you and respect you and will be interested in it. Yeah, I definitely want to just add to that. You know, you you build, I know Eric hates this word, but you build a platform, you know, you build a resource where people know who you are and, you know, will want to hire you, will want to pay you to do whatever it is that you do. And that's really where... I was able to make the transition with almost no notice was that basically I knew people. It wasn't just in my local area, though I'm pretty involved in the local users groups, but I had that engine where I could go out and I could talk to all kinds of people and say, hey, look, I'm looking for a contract. I'm looking to do this kind of stuff and, you know, find work. And so by the time the the severance and the bonus check and everything else that I had ran out, you know, I had enough work to pay all the bills and you know, I didn't have to go take that other job. And so it really worked out nicely for me because I had the connections. I knew a lot of people and I could just go talk to them and do that. And then the other thing that helped was that I had a series of videos showing that I was capable of doing what people needed. And so people would actually call me up and say, hey, I want to build something similar to what you built on your video show. And so I'd get the work that way too. I think half of my first five or six clients found me through the videos. It wasn't me going out and looking. That's amazing, right? Like that that's a fantastic feeling when someone calls you up and says, Hey, I'd like to pay you money for you to do the same sort of work that you've shown you know how to do. Yep. Not only does it boost your ego, but it's a tremendous business position to be in where you don't have to be working ridiculously hard just to find one contract. Yep. Eric, do you have anything to add or any other insight on this? Yeah, I mean if you can get like kind of prepared beforehand, like if you have a couple of months to do it, like that's obviously the best thing. But like for me, I, we actually moved. And so, you know, we completely severed like all local, you know, any kind of networking ties or any connections to like the local market because we moved out of state. 
And I originally, I was going to get a job up here and then I decided on a whim just to try freelancing. So, I mean, it would have been good if I prepared ahead of time, but I just kind of like jumped in with both feet and didn't really know what I was doing. And in that case, like, yeah, like building a platform or, you know, having connections that will help. But, you know, that doesn't actually like bring you projects like in the first month. And I think in that case, like you have to kind of do like what I did where, you know, fall back on what connections you have. Like I was lucky my previous employer and then I had a personal connection that came through. But my third, fourth, fifth client came from me trolling forums, going to Craigslist, going to different job boards and just like quote applying or whatever for any any kind of project that was out there and just trying to win stuff. And one of my bigger clients came from that. Like I ended up found someone writing on a forum from there, went to their actual website, went to their blog and started commenting on some of their posts. And then they contacted me and that turned into that large, you know, multi-year project I was talking about. Also from that forum that I was on, I met a guy and we ended up talking on the phone. Didn't turn into a project, but now, I mean, this is uh, seven years later, I'm connected with him and his business partner. And, you know, we're talking about doing some things together, but that was a relationship that we started years ago. So, I mean, I think you kind of have to put in a little bit of that, like, you know, run through the weeds and try to find anything you can when you get started. And that's actually something good to do, even if you have a platform, even if you have kind of connections, because, you know, otherwise, I mean, you're kind of just sitting there passively waiting for stuff to come to you. And it can kind of get discouraging if nothing's coming to you versus if you're actually going out and chasing things, at least you feel like you're actually doing some activity. And as long as you're doing like pretty good activity, like, you know, trying to do sales, like I think you'll actually get results from that. So if you guys were in a position where, let's say that the world reset in some crazy way, so you didn't know anybody, you didn't have any clients, you didn't have any work, you know, what would you do to get started? I would say it's at least two different things, maybe three different things. First of all, start making it clear to people that you know something, whether it's by blogging, whether it's Stack Exchange, you know, Stack Overflow, get your name out as an expert and maybe in just one technology, just so you can be known as the person there. A second thing is meet as many people as possible, right? Go to meetups, go to user groups, try to speak at those. Uh, I mean, I've often said that every time I speak at a user group conference or any sort of conference, I get a call. It sometimes takes six months, but I get a call from someone saying, hey, I saw you speak. I'd love to, to have you work with us. And the third thing is it, not to be embarrassed, I guess, about saying, hey, I offer this service. Maybe you can use it. Um, I actually just got this lesson uh, a few months ago, two, three months ago from someone. I was meeting with him and he said, I'm surprised that you have so few connections on LinkedIn. I said, I don't know. I, I think I have a lot of connections. And he said, you don't ever refuse connections, do you? I said, well, actually, I only accept connections from people who I really done work with. And he said, you're insane. The way that you should do this is try to reach out to as many people as possible. And when people reach out to you, you accept it. And then you say to them, I offer this service. How can I help you? And that's perhaps an extreme example, but I mean, of course, he's the CEO of a big company, so maybe he knows something, but actively going to people and saying, I offer this service, I can help you, can you use it, really works. And especially if you have that networking, especially if you have a blog or other experience to uh, demonstrate that you actually know what you're talking about. What do you think, Eric? Um, I agree. I mean, I myself don't do speaking, it's just not something strong for me and the travel and all that. It's just, it's really not, doesn't make a good fit for me, but you know, showing that you're an authority or showing that you know stuff on a topic and then kind of reaching out is basically the keys to most marketing. I'm actually doing that because I've done some kind of repositioning of my business and I'm actually like reaching out to CEOs, CTOs that I might not know, but I have someone that kind of knows them or I know about their company 
And it's basically like a cold reach out, like, hey, I, you know, I do this kind of service. I want to talk to you about what you use, see if there's anything I can do to help. You know, it's still early, so I can't speak to any results, but it is scary to do. But, you know, this is kind of how you would start from scratch and kind of build up relationships with people and potentially land clients. I mean, worst case is you're going to get either rejection or you're, you know, they're just going to ignore you and you're still kind of in the same place you were when you started. So it's kind of a, you know, no risk there. Yeah. I think for me, I mean, we're kind of talking about our different approaches, right? So, you know, the speaking doesn't really work for you. And for me, I mean, I would probably do some of the things I'm doing now, you know, so start a blog, uh, maybe start a podcast or two, you know, start talking to people and getting to know them, you know, show up at the user groups, you know, all the things that you're talking about there. And, you know, just kind of build a backlog of proof of expertise. And then at the same time, you know, yeah, just get out and get to know people and find out what they need and make sure that I am capable of offering that. I think there's some payoff in, you know, being able to demonstrate what you're capable of doing. And in a lot of cases, you know, like I said before, I mean, I've had people consume my content and then come to me and say, hey, you're obviously an expert in whatever and I need that in my business. And so, you know, then they, then they hire me. And so for me, it's a lot about that platform and a lot about, you know, just knowing people and being able to reach out to folks. I would say there's a, another piece as well, which is, I would say only mildly, mildly dishonest, which is certainly in my early days of consulting, when I wasn't quite so focused, people would call me up and say, Hey, do you do X or Y or Z? And I really wanted to get new clients and I really wasn't sure of the direction. And I said, of course, of course I do that. As long as it was sort of somewhat kind of related to things I'd done before. And so we would set up a meeting and then I would order a book overnight on that subject and read the book as carefully as possible and get some experience with it so that by the time I showed up at their office, I was certainly more of an expert than they were. And this actually worked surprisingly well. (laughs) I think I was the one rather surprised. But it meant that I got clients in areas that I wouldn't have otherwise uh, trying new things. And I got to learn new things as well. Yeah. That makes yeah. Sense. And I mean, as long as you, it's like similar to stuff you already know, then that can work good. Like a couple of years back, I was learning a whole bunch of different technology and one of them included Knockout JS. And I, I knew about it and I tried it out, uh, wrote a lengthy blog post on it and kind of a screencast and just basically ended up spending like three hours learning it. And it was all just self-taught learning. And then I don't know, maybe a month later, I had a client come to me that I won. And the only reason I really won it was because they had a Rails project, which I have experience in, that had a, was very heavily using Knockout, and they just needed another developer. And so, and I mean, I was up front with them, and I told them, like, look, this is my only experience. Like, if you want me to, I can help you a lot on the Rails side, and the Knockout stuff, I can kind of learn and try to do it just in time. And for them, that was more than adequate. I mean, someone who was willing to learn and actually knew, like, half of their software stack was more than enough. Yeah, I fudged on a few things like that as well. You know, areas where I know that I either... I can pick it up or I know people who can, you know, help backfill my, you know, the stuff that I don't know. And so, you know, that helps too. The other thing that's interesting is that in a lot of cases, people think that you have to be some kind of expert in order to get hired as a freelancer. And there are a lot of different types of freelance jobs out there. And some of them, you know, they just want somebody on the team that can handle a certain level of things. They don't need an expert. They don't need an architect. They don't need somebody who can do, you know, the the high-level planning and the low-level coding. What they really need is somebody who can just get in and, you know, take some stuff off of the plates of the people who are doing that stuff so that they can actually, you know, do the the higher level of expertise things that not everybody has. And so I think there are a lot of options for people um, at all levels for freelancing. Right. 
And that's kind of a story I had where I knew PHP, like that was like my first kind of official language, but I didn't program in it that much. I jumped to Ruby pretty quickly. And I had a client where I was doing Ruby work for, but they needed help with some WordPress stuff. They had the whole WordPress team and all that in place, but they just, they needed more help. Like it was a a high rush project. And I mean, I was up front with them and told them like, I know PHP, I know my way around WordPress, but I haven't, I'm not an expert at it. And, you know, they basically brought me in kind of at like the junior developer level and had a bunch of like the WordPress experts helping me out. But because I knew software development, I knew proper code, I knew all that stuff, like they were still paying my you know, expert Ruby developer rate. And for them, it was a win. Like, even though they're kind of overpaying me for the project, they still got the stuff done that they needed and that they were charging their client, you know, enough to actually make it worth the while. So, yeah, I mean, you can be an expert in a different, you know, topic or knowledge area and transfer some of that over. Or it could even be that, you know, the client just trusts you and you're upfront about like, I don't know this, but I can learn it. And I will, you know, I'll do the very best I can. And sometimes that's all they need. I mean, you know, some clients are just so busy that they can't, they just they can't do the work or they don't have staff or employees to do it. And so even then, it's just an extra developer body or designer body is all they need. Right. I mean, there are definitely different types of freelancing, right? There's some where you're brought in as the expert and there are others where they just need someone reliable. And finding someone just reliable who knows how to communicate is tough enough. And I, I think your story is a very good one because definitely there are places that they would rather have someone whom they know and can rely on learn something new than someone who's supposedly an expert but might be a real jerk or difficult to communicate with come in. Yeah, that is so true. So if you could kind of lay out a plan for people to go out and find their first client, and I know I want to put the caveat on this that, you know, I know that some people are better inclined or better at things like blogging than podcasting or podcasting than making videos or, you know, maybe making cold sales calls versus, you know, getting referrals. But is there kind of a general plan that we can give people that leads them to the point where they can actually then start to find clients? Like just a basic marketing plan? There is. I mean, I've actually written an ebook on this, but like the gist of it is you need to kind of set your business up like not like registering with the government or that sort of setup, but like why are you in business? What skills do you have? Like, what kind of clients are you looking for? You know, because if you're, if you're doing this just to, you know, make as much money as possible using, your development knowledge that you have right now, that's a completely different business than someone who is doing design stuff on the side just to pay the bills so that they can continue their artistic stuff. So kind of the first step is, you know, figuring that out, like, why are you doing it? Who are your clients? What are you looking for? You know, and then there's like some kind of foundational stuff of like, you know, set up a website, you know, figure out your portfolio, do some kind of um, either, you know, inbound or outbound marketing, which basically is like, do you do like what Chuck's calling the platform stuff where you do actually go out and like cold call people that you want to work with. You know, that's basically how you get started in most businesses. I mean, you know, once you start getting clients then you can kind of start getting into like the nitty gritty of tools and contracts and all that stuff. But until you're actually talking to people and talking to actual, you know, potential leads, like a lot of that stuff's not really needed. I think it depends to a certain degree on where you are, right? Like if you're sitting on a pile of cash and you've decided that you know, you've got a cushion for a number of months and you really want to build the business in the right way, slowly and methodically. I think everything that Eric is saying totally makes sense. Actually, what he's saying makes sense regardless, but sometimes you need a client, like you want to do the freelancing thing and you need a client now. And then it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, at least the user groups and meetups that I go to, 
almost always have companies saying, please, please, we're desperate for people who have the following skills. Uh, and even if they're usually looking for full-time employees, sometimes if they're desperate enough or you're willing to negotiate enough on, on rates, and I'm not saying you should sell yourself short, but if you really need something right now, then you might be willing to, then it's worth talking to them. You know, if people say that they're looking for employees, then they might be looking for contractors. And looking for contractors, all the more so. You know, that's a tactic. That's a short-term thing. That's not a long-term strategy for bringing in clients. Yeah. So what I tell people as far as uh, tactics go is for the short term, like if you need a client right away, yeah, just go talk to everybody. Everybody you know, everybody you can think of, just let them know that's what you're looking for. And then if you, uh, you know, if you're trying to build something out longer term, I think Eric really has it there. You know, you do the platform building, the work, you know, where you, uh, you know, you make it pay off longer term. And I, I honestly can't recommend Eric's book highly enough to get started, you know, for 30 days to become a freelancer. It's got some great stuff in there. And most of the stuff really is yeah, just hard to get be started clear. with. Go ahead. Okay, just to be clear, like, I think you should do the platform building either way because it's yeah. the thing, even if you need work now, like do a little bit because it is a long-term play. It's going to take, you know, months to years before it actually is paying off a lot. I don't remember what part, but I mean, even in the book, I tell people like go out as soon as you can and start talking to people, like go to a forum and pitch your services against people you think could become a client. I mean, even if you are sitting on a pile of cash, even if you have like a 12 month runway to get started, Pitching yourself and pitching your service is going to build up your experience and it's going to basically expose a lot of holes in the plan that you built. And if you also, if you don't have any run rate, if you got laid off and you have no savings or you jumped in like how I did, like pitching yourself is going to get you the really fast feedback and let you actually, you know, figure out if you're wrong or if you're right and actually land your clients. And so part of the thing is I actually try to get the people who get the book to go out and do that as soon as possible because you know, you can sit and plan for months or years of how you're going to start your business and the perfect way to do it. But, you know, it's the the idea that no strategy ever survives contact with the enemy. I'm also going to recommend uh, Eric's book. But one thing that he says in there has also been said, I've, I've seen a bunch of people say it recently, and I'd never really thought about it before that. Before I, I guess I read in your book first. Um, it's the whole idea is your ideal client. So years ago, I tried doing some cold calling. I was not so good at it. I probably just didn't approach it in the right way. But basically, I never even thought about who would my ideal client be? Who are the sorts of people I want to work with? Who are the people who can benefit from my sort of advice and work? And so I just said, oh, well, here's a company. I'll call them. Here's a company. I'll call them. And really thinking about who do I want to work with? Who do I like to work with? And using that as a baseline for then trying to find more such clients and then strategizing to find more such clients, I thought was a very, very useful piece of advice. Because there's no way, and there's a good thing, there's no way that one person can be appropriate for all sorts of different companies out there. And so by focusing on something good, it allows you to focus on your marketing efforts, and it means that there's a greater chance that you'll find someone who's appropriate for you. Yeah, and it not only helping with focusing the marketing efforts, but it really it really informs how you talk to those people because you've identified that they're, you know, whatever type of company you want to work with. And so you don't even mess around with, hey, I'm a whatever developer and I do whatever work, you know, you just go straight to the heart of their problem because you've already figured out that uh, they need a specific problem solved. And so right. your your entire right. pitch is different. Right. And I'm actually doing that now because like uh, a couple of months ago, I talked about on previous episodes, I kind of changed the way my business has changed the services I'm providing as far as like the actual end result. Like it's still the same, like I'm still doing the same code, that sort of thing behind the scenes, but how I'm positioning it, all that has changed. And I had to, you know, do these exercises myself, figure out who my new ideal client is. And the interesting thing is like, I've been doing cold calls. I've been doing some stuff like that to like 
you reach people I think would be an ideal client. And I guess this past week, week and a half, I've been noticing that hmm, the people who I thought would be my ideal client, like CEOs at this size of a company in this industry, they're too big for me. They're not responding. They're, you know, they care about this problem, but it's not their most pressing problem. And so I'm actually going and adjusting it. So like I'm going to target a bit smaller companies where, you know, the problem is actually keeping the CEO awake at night versus like, oh, I have all these you know, 42 divisions across the US and I don't care about what Eric's talking about. And so just by, you know, going out and getting feedback from that, I'm actually kind of tweaking and refining my own version of the ideal client. You know, I had a, a version before that lasted me for about five years. And so like this, the concept of it and how it works, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's a nice way to really concisely explain, you know, who you actually can help. Yeah. The other thing that I like to tell people when they're first out there looking for clients is, you know, don't be afraid to reevaluate and I think you really nicely illustrated that, Eric. We've been talking so far, I guess maybe it's just implicit, but the assumption is that people are looking to do freelancing full-time or that they're looking for full-time clients. And if you're not 100% sure if you're this is really right for you, or if you just want to stick your toes in the water, it's definitely possible to take on small part-time clients, especially working remotely. It's a bit different, but it means that you can work maybe evenings or weekends and try it out, see if it works. And if you like it, then you can expand on it. It's not an all or nothing sort of deal. Yeah, I think you have a good point there. I mean, my first contract gig was, I was moonlighting or, you know, basically it was a contract and it was freelance, but it was stuff I was doing after work for somebody that I had met in the community here. Do you guys have any advice for finding that sort of first client? Just like, I mean, what I was saying before about meeting people, talking to them in companies, companies are often interested, I found at least, or maybe this is just an Israel thing, in having part-timers. They're, they're not stuck on the idea of only having full-timers work for them. And coming in even, you know, a day a week, two days a week, or doing something in the evening might be useful or valuable to some of them at some times. Yeah, one other tactic that I found is that successful freelancers sometimes find projects that are a little bit bigger than they can handle on their own. And so if you get involved with people who are, you know, freelancers, this is something that I did pretty early on. I just kind of lucked my way into a group that Eric was in that, uh, you know, they kind of answered questions about freelancing and stuff. They weren't terribly active, but they were, you know, they were there and they would answer each other's questions and have conversations about this stuff. And I didn't find any work that way, but I'm pretty sure that if some of those other guys had found work that they, you know, they had overflow or they needed somebody to help them with a project, that that's probably one of the first places they would have gone to find work. You can work some of that stuff out that way. And on some of the projects, yeah, I only need somebody like, you know, 10 hours a week, 15 hours a week. And so, you know, you could do that in your spare time in the evening. Yeah, I was going to say, I know that group, I passed probably half a dozen projects to people that like they actually landed. And I think a lot of people from that group actually were seated into this podcast to kind of get this podcast going. And then uh, I know one guy from the group I've worked with, I mean, even as recently as six months ago. And I mean, we've gone back and forth where he would win a project and I'd come in as a sub under him or work with him, or I'd land a project and have the client bring him on. And so like that, you know, informal networking group has you know, helped out a lot of freelancers that are in that little group, that network community. And one, how do I say this? Another good way to do, like if you just want to get started on the side, is I call them maintenance contracts. Um, that's kind of the software developer version of it, but it works in other industries. If you can find people like clients that, you know, they need a little bit of work, but it's not urgent and they need it all the time. 
Um, those are great for moonlighting gigs in the software industry. Like a lot of the companies will build a product for a client, deliver it, and then leave. And they'll go off and work on the next client and build a new product. If you can set your business up where you step in after that first big company builds the software and you basically provide like maintenance updates, security updates for that client, that can be very lucrative and it doesn't require like you to be full time. You know, you can get one or two of them and be set for a couple of years. And that also works, you know, with designers, writers, whatever. You can, you know, have a reoccurring thing where you write a company's weekly newsletter or weekly blog post for them. Or, you know, if they are bringing out new products all the time, you can audit their designs or kind of update design on a landing page, that sort of thing. But those kind of the periodic recurring tasks are really good because then you don't have to worry about landing a new client every month. You can have more longer term contracts and that most of the work usually isn't urgent. So if you have to get it done at night or on the weekend, the client's not breathing down your neck. That's a great idea. And it makes a lot of sense too. Yeah, that was kind of the second contract that I got. It was actually a maintenance contract and it was 10 hours a week and I was working on, it was basically a glorified blog. It kind of split the difference between a blog and a news site. And yeah, that's all they needed. I mean, so 10 hours a week, that is something that somebody could work on after work and blah, 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 right? As long as you're available to your client when they need to talk to you and communicate with you, you know, worked out really nicely. And I could totally see somebody doing something like that as a moonlight gig. If you're upfront about it with the clients and you tell them like, you know, you have a full-time job and, you know, you have these hours, most clients, if it's not urgent stuff, they're fine with it. Um, another good thing is if you could take advantage of time zones. Like if you're on the East Coast and your client's on the West Coast, that's a three-hour difference. So you could finish up your nine-to-five job and actually call the client during their business hours still. And if you're working, you know, I'm US centric, but if you're working outside the US or other places, that still could be in your favor too. If you're in the UK and your client's in the US, like you guys could actually be working at the same time, even though you're, you're working at night and moonlighting. Yeah. The other thing that's nice about it too, is that, so I've had subcontractors from various parts of the world and I give them a task to do. And then when I get up in the morning it's done, which is also a very nice thing. You know, it's like, oh, okay, you know, here's the task. They ask their questions, they get enough information to complete it, and then when I'm ready to pick up in the morning, you know, box checked, and then I just make sure they know what to work on before I go to bed that night. And so, you know, there are a lot of advantages, there are a lot of ways to do it where, you know, you can really make it work for your client. Right, I've often had it the other way around when I'm in Israel and I'm working for people in the U.S., so we'll talk, you know, at the beginning of their day, end of their day, and then I'll go off and work on things while they're asleep and then submit it to them. And so it can be a little frustrating sometimes to navigate the time zones, but if you figure it out in the right way, then it can be really productive and effective for everyone. Yeah, and every client's going to be different and they're going to value different, you know, different things, different advantages are going to work better for them than others. So, you know, be flexible, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to go with it. All right, any other big ideas? I'm trying to think if there are certain kinds of clients to avoid. At the beginning. Bad ones? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> don't work for bad clients. Don't work for people who don't intend to pay you. Yeah. I mean, what I would recommend, especially if you're new to freelancing and or you're new to business, like if you don't have a, you know, you don't have a business education or you worked in like management or stuff like that, try to pick up clients that have like kind of on the smaller side of projects to get started. You don't want your first project to be a multi-year big, you know, six figure, seven figure project because there's a good chance that you're not going to know what you don't know and you're going to be surprised by things. So like maybe you underbid by, I don't know, $600,000 or something. 
try to like get some small projects, some small wins under your belt and use the experience from that to kind of figure out how the bigger stuff works. I'm not saying, you know, if one lands in your lap, you should just run away from it, but you should really be cautious that there's bigger projects tend to have bigger problems and, you know, be aware of that going into them. Yeah, that's fair. And definitely pick clients that'll pay you. Yeah, and stop working for them if they don't pay you. Unlike my mistake early on, although that was resolved to everyone's benefit. I would also say, like, no matter how amazing or wonderful a client seems, it's probably, I mean, it's definitely not going to last forever. And so you should expect to have to find new clients and other clients at some point. I mean, every time I say, oh, my God, every time I tell, tell my wife that I found this amazing client, it's going to be this fantastic relationship. She says, yeah, it might be, but it'll probably last, you know, six months a year and then they'll move on or you'll move on. And so you, you can't stop looking for other people. And if it's the worst, if it's a bad client, don't stay with them. Just thinking, oh, my God, there's no one else out there. There is. You'll find someone. I think I just gave the equivalent of dating advice for consultants. <laughs> <laughs> But honestly, like I come back to a lot of my writing. I mean, the client to contractor slash freelancer slash consultant relationship, it's a relationship. I mean, you, you have kind of your first dates, you have kind of getting to know people, and then you kind of have this long ongoing thing that could turn into a marriage. Like it's, it's very similar. It's, you know, standard people relationship stuff. And I mean, a lot of books, a lot of advice says, you know, you aren't talking to a business when you're talking to a client, you're talking to a person who works at a business. And so a lot of the same psychological stuff is, you know, it's the same thing in business as it is in life in general. Don't show up with like flowers and chocolate for your first client meeting. But you know, if you buy a box of donuts or some croissants or something like that actually goes pretty far. Yep. Absolutely. I just wanted to add that because you're dealing with people and not just a company, at the end of the day, people are making decisions. Remember that everything is negotiable. And so if they're an established company and they're used to working with freelancers in a certain way and you want to work a slightly different way, it's okay to raise that as an issue. In fact, they may expect you to raise as an issue. So if they want to pay you after 30 days or 60 days and you want to be paid you know, right away, talk to them about it or in advance or a down payment. It's totally worth talking to them about it and you're not going to offend them or upset them. I think that was one of the big lessons I had to learn, that it's okay to talk about these sorts of money and contractual issues. You guys make it sound like clients are made out of people. <laughs> well, you know, I've heard someone say that companies are people. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anything else I should bring up about finding your first clients or... I mean, one thing is it sells, like you're going to get rejected a lot. And at the beginning, you're probably going to get, feel like you're getting rejected all the time and you just, you have to kind of stick through it. So especially if you're approaching it from like kind of an artistic or creative background, like it's going to be hard and you know, it's definitely an emotional roller coaster at times, but you know, keep at it and you'll find the right people eventually, you know, don't get discouraged by like, you know, your first few no's, like keep working, chalk it up to his learning experience and move on. Right. I think probably common for, especially for software developers to be so sought after because it's still a, a skill that's desperately in need in many places. So the notion that you're going to get 10 companies, 20 companies saying no to you, that they're not interested might come as a shock, but that's just part of the game and use as a learning experience. I've sometimes even, when I have not gotten contracts, I've asked the client or asked the potential client, asked the company, why, why did you reject me? And sometimes they'll be very frank about it and they'll say it was for this reason or that reason. Usually it's a money reason, but not always. And it's often useful to find out what they have to say. They say no because they're mean. Well, yeah. <laughs> Just like when I say no to my kids, it's because I'm mean. All right, well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Reuven, you want to start the picks? Sure. So I've got two picks for today. First pick is another podcast that I've discovered 
from Slate. Slate seems to be doing Slate Magazine Online, seems to be coming out with this huge number of podcasts lately. And actually, a good number of them are very good. So the latest one they've come out with is a daily podcast called The Gist. And they had said, oh, it's this guy, Mike Pesca, and he's amazing. You'll want to hear him say whatever he says. Even if you read the phone book, it would be interesting. And I was like, oh, come on. And the guy is actually very interesting and very funny. It's sort of like a 20-minute, 25-minute daily magazine. So it's about I don't know, 10, 15 minutes on one newsy topic, then another 10 minutes on some art, sort of art topic, and then he rants and raves for about another five minutes. But I found it to be extremely funny, extremely entertaining, and actually quite informative as well. So the gist is my first pick. And the second pick is my dissertation software, since I turned in my, or I guess I defended my dissertation last week. Yay! So, uh, modulo uh, corrections on my dissertation, which I have to turn in within the next 10 days. So that's June 13th. I've got my PhD, so I'll advertise my dissertation software again, the Modeling Commons, for people who are interested in agent-based modeling. And if you're not interested in agent-based modeling, well, you really should be. Actually, it's really cool stuff, and so you're all welcome to take a look. Yeah, when you open it up, say, what's up, Doc? (laughs) Anyway, that's my picks for this week. All right. Eric, what are your picks? All right, so, sorry, I got a Bugs Bunny cartoon stuck in my head now. Uh... (laughs) Two things. One uh, is a blog post called Sales for Hackers. I thought I read it last night. It's actually pretty good. It talks about kind of from the perspective of a salesperson, like how to do sales. It's, you know, developer centric, but it's actually a short blog post and it kind of talks about, you know, overcoming uh, objections, how you figure out like, is this the person you should be talking to for sales? I think for freelancers, it's probably a good introduction and can kind of get you started. And there's a few things that I'm going to, you know, put into practice pretty soon for my stuff. And then the second thing, just because Everyone's mentioned it. The book I have, 30 Days to Become a Freelancer. I'll give you guys a coupon code, Freelancer Show. So two S's in it. If you do one S, it'll still work. We'll give you 20% off any package offer you get on it. Go buy it. <laughs> All right. I've got a couple of picks. So I was doing some work for my client yesterday and I, uh, I actually overcommitted a little bit. So I was up until like midnight, 1230 ish working on stuff for him. He had a demo tomorrow or the next morning. And he's in Germany, actually. So when he got up at 7 a.m., I was still up working on it because it was midnight here. Anyway, the thing that was really cool about it was I was building these charts with dc.js. And it's got a couple of tools in it and then kind of ties everything together nicely. And so this is totally a programmer pick. If you need charts on your website, you know, it's a good library to know about. And you can find a competent programmer if you're not a programmer to do it. But anyway, so it builds bar charts and pie charts and everything. But the thing that's really cool about it is that once you have it draw all the charts, if you click on a particular like segment on the pie chart, it'll actually adjust all of the other charts and show you the pie charts for just that segment. So this is a travel website. So it was like all the bookings for departures in the morning. So I click on that and then it'd show me, okay, you know, of those, these are the discounts that they got. Here are all of the prices, you know, in the bar chart and all the stuff. It was really, really cool. And I, I got excited about it. So I'm going to pick it on the show. Another one that I'm going to pick is uh, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters by Meg Meeker. She's a pediatrician. And it's basically kind of a discussion on the influence that dads have on their daughters. And just a terrific book. And, you know, there are so many things. She, she kind of discusses some of the scary statistics out there, you know, on the different things that your daughter's going to encounter. But at the same time, you know, she comes back in and basically explains some of the things that you need to be doing as a dad to help inform and guide your daughter into, you know, right way to live and the way to avoid some of the dangerous stuff out there. 
And it talks a lot about the emotional things that girls go through and some of the, you know, some of the influences that are out there. And anyway, it's the only book that I've read in the last year that made me cry. <laughs> so anyway, I just have to say it's, it's a terrific book. And so if you're a dad and you have a daughter, then uh, go pick it up. Those are my picks. So I guess we'll start wrapping up. We'll catch y'all next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.